We're continuing our series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We're in Genesis 6, verses 5 to 22 today. So you can head there in your Bible if you have a Bible on you. It is going to be on the screen. A few notes before we start. Finally got around to doing our sermon notes draw. If you, f- if you are in junior high or high school and you stay in for the sermon, and if you fill out the sermon notes and hand them into me, you get placed into a draw. Every month I draw a $20 gift certificate, but I haven't been doing it for the last few months because I just keep forgetting about it. Our life has been a little busy. So I did it this week and Adea, Lauren, and Lily won. So congratulations to them. That's awesome. And again, anybody in junior high and high school can fill these out and submit them. Uh, Another thing I want to bring to your attention in advance of next month's potluck, so it's potluck Sunday today, but next month, what we're going to do this year uh, in coordination with our missions committee is to hold four fundraising potluck lunches to benefit organizations or maybe even individuals within our community. And next month, I've invited Nick Sparrow to come and share at our church on our potluck Sunday about Kerpa. Has anyone, does anyone know about Kerpa within our community? Kootenai Emergency Response Physicians Association. This is basically Nick um, driving to serious acc- scenes of accidents and emergency situations on his own time within the community and doing that as a way to provide uh, critical life-saving measures to those within our community. It is an amazing organization. You can find out more by going to kerpa.org, I believe, or if you just search up Nick Sparrow Kerpa, he's going to come and share. And what we're inviting you to do is just consider, in lieu of maybe going out to lunch uh, that day, uh, stay here for lunch, be part of the potluck, and throw in $10, $20. Let's see how much money we can raise for Kerpa. Uh, That's a really, really awesome organization. And uh, I hope that that will really just be kind of a wind in his sails. And it's, uh, it's an amazing ministry, really, that you'll hear more about on that Sunday. And lastly, I want to thank you to those. I sent out an email, not to everybody, because I didn't need a ton, but I did send out a few strategic emails to people asking for blankets and pillows, because during our last really cold snap that we had about a week and a half back, remember it was getting to the minus 10, minus 15 at night, there's about four to eight individuals within Nelson who sleep on the streets, even in those conditions, because they don't meet the barrier of entry into another, any of the other um, uh, safe spaces in Nelson, either because they are heavily drug addicted uh, or suffer with mental illness or are violent and deal with um, all kinds of mental health issues related to uh, an inability for impulse control. I was contacted by Peter Lemaire, who works through Anchors, and he said, hey, would your church be able to donate some pillows and blankets because we're looking for a church space to staff with volunteers to help those people. Make a long story short, the United Church has opened up their basement on nights that go colder than minus eight and that are um, really, really challenging for these individuals. They're gonna staff it with people in the healthcare field because regular volunteers just don't cut it for this kind of high needs uh, population. But we donated, uh, a number of people from the church donated blankets and pillows and we also purchased for them uh, four foamies that they can use just to make the evening more comfortable. So I wanna say thank you Uh, for those who were involved in that as well. And thank you for those of you who give because part of those funds for the FOMIs came out of our community outreach. We're always looking for ways to bless and serve um, real tangible needs within our community. So everyone here was a part of that if you give just generally. Okay, Genesis 2 verses 5 to 22. Kind of a precursor to the flood. This is God 
We're kind of getting a window into God's heart and we're seeing the plans being put into place between God and Noah. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under heaven. Even creature, sorry, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the playing out of the story and its relevance to us. But one thing that can be easy to skip over or we can kind of uh, maybe import into the text the fact that the earth is filled with violence and corruption and so God is filled with wrath and that kind of is the domino that moves the story forward and ultimately the judgment of God forward. But it's really important to understand and to see that the text makes very clear that it's God's grieving over humanity's wickedness and evil. That is the reason for the flood. And this is quite interesting um, because in other ancient stories, other civilizations have flood narratives. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit more next week. But in almost all of them, the reason for the flood was because the human population had grown so large and it was so noisy the gods were essentially annoyed by how much noise humanity was making. And so they sent a flood to kind of cull the population. We see a very different picture here in Genesis. It's one where human flourishing is a good thing, but people are not filling the world with righteousness and justice and goodness and care and love. They're filling it with corruption and violence and it grieves the heart of God. So it's God's grief over the wickedness and evil of humanity, right? Uh, Verses five, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. Every inclination of his thought was only evil all the time. Verse 11, 
The earth was corrupted in God's sight and was full of violence. In Genesis 1.31, the Bible says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And now God saw the state of affairs now and his heart is filled with grief. Humanity's evil is presented as extensive and intensive. Um, there's this devastating layering of words that really leads you to the conclusion that it was kind of like, oh, it wasn't just kind of a mixed bag of like some light and some darkness every inclination, every habit. In fact, the, the word that is sometimes translated as inclination or imagination is the Hebrew word yeser, and it's closer to action than just um, we might, it might be easy for us to translate it when we say something like inclination and think, well, the, their motivations, their, their interiority was corrupt, but it has just as much purchase on expression. In fact, the verb is used when describing a potter that how a potter forms clay. And so one way you could think about this text is to say when God observes his creation and these image bearers that are meant to reflect his goodness and his priorities, what he sees are humans that in every form and expression of their humanity just multiply evil and wickedness. Verse six, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. And this is a really tragic, um, dark note in the story as Genesis has been unfolding. The word grieved is quite complex in the Hebrew and it can be translated in all kinds of ways. Regretted, some of your translations will say, was sorry that he has, had made or was saddened. And old school people who are using a King James this morning will notice an even stranger, otter word there. It'll say, God repented. Now, we probably don't think of God repenting because our association with that word is you repent from sin, you repent from wrongdoing. So God doesn't do wrong, so why would God repent? That seems strange, maybe even blasphemous. But when you consider that repentance, that word just means a change in direction, it begins to kind of make sense. The text is showing us that God looks and sees in its totality, not just a surface, kind of just glances over. He really takes a look at what's going on. And he sees a world full of wickedness and violence. And that's not what God wants. A lot of ancient cultures thought, well, there's so much violence and wickedness. I guess this is just par for the course. This must be the way that God's designed reality to be. Just violence and suffering and corruption. And yet Genesis is showing us that is not any part of God's intention or plan for humanity. God is deeply distressed over the violence, so much so that he's going to have to intervene and change course. He can't just let this, um, these waves of violence and corruption continue to play out. Just as, it lo just as it's really difficult and painful, not just difficult, but painful for a loving parent to see their child go down a path of reckless, not just disobedience, but self-destruction. It pains God to see what humanity has become. And with sin reaching its full measure, God realizes he has to change direction. He has to intervene with a serious judgment in order to prevent this pain and exploitation and violence to continue. And so verse six clearly shows us 
that God's decision to bring judgment is made from sorrow, not just arbitrary anger. And I think that's really important to keep in mind when we talk about this judgment of God or any of the other judgment of God in Scripture. Judgment in the sense of bringing the full consequences of judgment and condemnation to bear on an individual or a nation or humanity, that's not something that God takes pleasure in. This picture of God as this bearded uh, man up in the sky holding a lightning bolt ready to strike down anybody who does anything wrong, that's Zeus, that's Greek mythology. Be careful not to import that word picture when you think about God because God is the one who in Ezekiel 18 says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? This is why God extends so much grace even to maybe people in your own life, maybe even to you, to not just throw down a lightning bolt every time you make a mistake because God doesn't take delight in the condemnation or destruction of his good creation. He's always looking and angling for a way to bring it back, to reconcile, to bring healing, hoping that those creatures made in his image, they themselves will repent and change course and turn and find life in God. In verse eight, you get this really powerful grace note. Up to this point, there's been this like, ugh, tragic, wow, the earth has really come to this, humanity's really come to this. But it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah's described in verse nine as a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, maybe especially for Christians, our, the gears in our head can kind of get stuck a little bit because we're like, well, wait a second. What does that mean that he's righteous or that he's blameless? Does that mean like he's like sinless like Jesus? Because we tend to associate like holiness and righteousness with Jesus and we're probably or hopefully familiar if we spent any time studying scripture with some of these core truths that come out of, let's say, Romans 3, where um, Paul is saying, you know, there's no one righteous. No one could actually claim to be righteous, not even one person. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we can sometimes have a hard time with these Old, text Old Testament texts that treat certain people as different or, and call them righteous. But what's important to understand about those texts is that when this text is signaling that Noah was righteous, it's not referring to righteousness in an absolute term, in an absolute way compared to God, right? It's not saying Noah was capital R righteous. He was blameless, meaning he had no sin. And the text gives us clues as to that. It says, he was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. Noah is righteous in comparison to the people around him. It's from a human point of view. There are things about Noah's life in that he did, maybe to the letter of the law, imperfectly follow, follow God, so he wasn't sinless, but his disposition was one where he wanted to please and honor God. And that allowed him to be called righteous. So, we might today look at a group of people and there might be one or two people that really stand out as having character or elements of who they are that are really commendable and praiseworthy. And we might say, uh, kind of reflexively, wow, that's a really good person. You know, I might say that about someone. I'm not saying 
they're good, capital G, like God is good, blameless, sinless. That's not, you know, Jesus says only God is good, and he's talking about it in that absolute way. But comparatively speaking, there are people that have different, that do reflect to a greater degree God's intention for what it means to be a person fully alive and living for God's glory. The Lord says to Noah, we didn't, we'll look at this next week, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. So God isn't saying, hey, Noah, you're perfect, so you gotta, the judgment doesn't apply to you. Noah is just as much a recipient of God's grace as anyone else. But God does take note of the fact that um, Noah was trying to walk with him. Then in verses 14 to 16, you get the preparation for the flood. God's giving Noah these blueprints, this 450-foot-long, 75-feet-deep, 45, sorry, 75-feet-wide, 45-feet-deep displacement area of about, people have crunched the numbers, 43,000 tons. And what's interesting about the ark is that it really doesn't have an ancient um, parallel in terms of boats. So when these designs are coming down from God, this isn't something where Noah's like, oh yeah, like I, I totally saw that same one at like Home Depot was set up and like I totally, I, I, I kind of, I see where this is going. <laughs> one commentator said, prior to the invention of seaworthy vessels, which could carry sailors and cargo through the heavy seas of the Mediterranean, most boats were made of skin or reeds that were designed to sail through marshes or just along riverbanks. They were used for fishing or hunting and would not have been more than 10 feet in length. True sailing ships with a length of up to 170 feet are depicted in old kingdom Egyptian art, which is about 2,500 years BC. So this text in the story would predate that. And they do show up in Ugaritic or Phoenician texts about another thousand years closer to when Christ was born. But even this late, they still generally, seafaring, uh, these vessels are still generally designed to operate within sight of land. And so when Noah, are, Noah is getting these instructions, there is a very, very big leap of faith that Noah has to take here. Because this is not a kind of vessel that he would have looked around and had any sort of um, frame of reference towards. But notice in verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That's part of Noah's righteousness, that he might not have understood how this was going to play out. God doesn't give him all the details, but Noah trusts God, and he responds by doing exactly what God said. Smart guy. So in this passage, and in my own study and reflection, two things jump out at me, and the, the first is a question. And I think this is a question for all of us in this room. Will you follow God's leading even when no one else around you is doing it? Will you follow God's leading even when no one else will? Now that's the framing question, but there's all kinds of nuanced questions underneath that, like are you going to listen to and trust God and obey God even when you have little or no support from your family or your friends? or the community around you. 
Will you follow God's leading even when his direction and plan doesn't seem to make sense? When you're not given all the details, you're not given steps one through 10, you're given step one. And it, from, a, from your perspective, you honestly cannot figure out how that step one is even really a step in the right direction. Will you follow God even if it means a very serious change to life as you know it? Because think about, think about what this represents for Noah. This is what's going to happen, Noah. This is what I need you to do. There is no like, and then in five years, this is where you're going to be, and this is the future of what, what everything's going to look like. The, the horizon for Noah's future is very, very fuzzy, but he still trusts God. But he also understands that this is a no turning back thing. I'm either moving forward with God or I'm not. But I'm not going to find myself in the same situation a year from now. My life is going to look different. Now, these are questions that were placed before Noah. But they're also questions that kind of echo down through the biblical story. They find their way before many, many characters in the Bible. And this morning, they're finding their way before each of us. They're finding their way before us as a community. They're finding their way before you as individuals, within your marriages, within your families. With a high degree of confidence, I would say no one is... God has not revealed himself to anyone here, instructing you to build a boat. But he has revealed himself to you and called you to follow him as a disciple in the person of Jesus. Will you follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus even when no one else around you is doing it? There's no social reinforcement. There's no cachet for doing it. There's no status that gets accrued to you. Will you follow and trust Jesus even when his ways seem counterintuitive at best or maybe even foolhardy at worst? To begin taking time out of your busy full life to pray, to engage the scriptures and read them and to seek to obey them, to forgive those who have genuinely and seriously harmed you, to begin making Jesus' priorities your priorities, to begin aligning your finances with what honors God, with, with um, your schedule with what honors God, begin serving, begin really grappling with what does it mean for me to lay down my life so that increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly, people around me know that I think God is kavod. He is glorious. I want them to see that. When they come into contact with me, I want them to come into contact with someone who is increasingly conformed to Christ-like behavior, attitude, posture. Will you follow Jesus even though it will inevitably mean a change to life as you know it. Noah did everything that God commanded him. As Christians, we are called to look to Jesus and to bear our hearts before him and say, God, I am scared. I don't see how this is going to work. These plans seem odd. I don't know how to forgive in my own power. I don't know how to move forward into what you're calling me to do. 
but would you give me grace and strength to do what you've commanded me to do? And give me grace and faith to do it, God, even if no one around me is doing it. No one in my youth group, no one in my church, none of my friend circles, no one at work, no one in my small group. I'm going to follow you, God, even if no one else does. The second thing that stood out to me was that a commitment to righteousness and holiness actually matters. When we seek to grow in our ability to live rightly, righteously, before God and before other people, and we live rightly towards God and towards other people, that makes a really big difference, like a tangible difference. I posted this meme on my Instagram account this week, right? A Christian who might say, God loves me, so that means he's going to bless me no matter how I choose to live. God's like, I think, I think a lot of Christians believe this is true. The logic is sort of sound. God loves me. I'm saved. I'm one of his children, so therefore God will just bless me irrespective of how I choose to live. And there's kind of a yes, no, there's a cat, there's a little asterisk that you have to put there. Because yes, there are huge blessings that come automatically, unconditionally, as part of our justif- justification before God. The moment that we yield our lives and hearts to Jesus, in that moment, the Bible says a number of things happen independent of us. It's not works. We are saved by grace. And in that moment, we are saved. We are given the gift of eternal life. We're sealed, the scriptures say. Scripture says we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. We're empowered into a new kind of life. God begins to immediately soften our heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There are these capital B blessings that are automatic that are just part of the supernatural birthright of every Christian as part of being God's child. But there are many, many other blessings, lowercase b, that are contingent upon our cooperation with God and our desire and striving to walk with God now that we are his child, now that we are forgiven, we're not walking with God in order to be forgiven or in order to earn our salvation. Now that we have received those capital B blessings, we learn to walk with God so that he can give us other blessings. You're not going to experience the blessing of relational harmony in your life if you are not practicing the principles of relational harmony that Jesus invites you into. If I just go through my life as a Christian and hard-heartedly decide to not forgive, hold on to resentment, I shouldn't expect my relational landscape to be filled with shalom and good things. That's not because God doesn't want it to be filled with good things and to be filled with harmony, but I'm in a sense cutting off that blessing through my own disobedience. God still loves me. I'm still saved, but I'm walking in disobedience and there's going to be a disharmony that results. 
So whether it's relational harmony or financial peace or a certain degree of physical wellness, there's these conditional things that demand our action and our obedience. And God, like a loving father, wants to bless his children with more than just salvation, with power in his presence and true prosperity across the dimensions of human life. But if we, as Christians, live in such a way that we're rejecting or ignoring God, then we shouldn't expect all these other blessings. We should expect, the book of James says, discipline. And that means the little decisions that you make every day of how to invest your time and your talents and your treasure, those things really matter. That's not just an add-on, like striving for personal holiness and to live rightly before God. Like, that's for like Jesus Keeners. Like, I'm saved. Like, I pop in the church once in a while, but like, I'm not like that kind of like, ooh, all to Jesus I surrender. It's like, no, that is the heart of the Christian life. When you see who Jesus is, when you see his weight and significance, you want to live into that vision more and more. You want to root out sin in your life. You are increasingly not okay in any area of your life with sin kind of getting a grip on you and pulling you down and holding you back from pursuing what God has for you. Now, please don't hear me equate obedience with some kind of mechanistic understanding of blessing, right? Well, I do my devotions this morning, so therefore God's going to bless me in this particular way. Or if I give this to the church, this is going to happen. Or if I say these words, this is going to happen. It's not mechanical. It says Noah walked with God. It's this posture and heart that says, God, today I want to honor you. And when I don't, sensitize my spirit to that. Teach me how to ask you and other people for forgiveness and to repent, to change direction so that I walk away from that mode of being. I want my life more and more to reflect you. I want to go in your direction. So the pursuit of righteousness and holiness matters to a Christian. There's an interesting scripture that God, um, in the book of Deuteronomy, God says to his people, this is the nation of Israel, but I think the principle is transferable. He says, if you will only obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commands that I am commanding you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings which God just outlined, which broadly speaking are spiritual and material prosperity, let's say, shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. These people have been saved out of Egypt. They're Israel. They're God's children. But God is saying, there's a certain way that I want you to live because there's blessings that I have for you. But it's even more interesting in that because the Hebrew word that gets translated here as overtake, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you is nisag. And the image is kind of counterintuitive. Um, It's actually God running after his people with armloads of gifts. One commentator says, if we pursue righteousness, we actually don't have to worry about finding our reward because it will find us. It's the idea that when we obey God, God is like, oh, that's awesome. Here you go, right? It's like a loving parent. I, what I don't want to do as a loving parent is incentivize my kids' disobedience. So when they disobey, I love them and I wish that I could bring certain advantages and privileges into their life, but I hold off on it because I don't want them to think, 
oh, I can just live this way and I get all these other blessings. That's awesome. My dad must really love me. No, I really love them so that when they do what isn't right, I hopefully gently correct them. I know it's not always gentle, Lauren, but it is, you know, and that's, that's, that's for me to ask for forgiveness for God and my kids. But when I see them doing right and living rightly before God and other people, there are these extra blessings that I want to give them, that I want to extend to them. And that's my heart. That's my fundamental posture. It isn't like, earn my love, earn my approval. It's like, I have all this for you. But I also want to be judicious in terms of how I hand that out. And that's the picture that you see here. God has given so many blessings unconditionally to us in Christ. And God cannot bless disobedience. He can't bless one of his children who are walking in an ongoing sinful, self-centered disposition through their days and their weeks and their months. So the question that I thought about this week and I want to present before you is, where do you need to repent? Where do you need to change course, change direction in a particular area of your life so that God's blessings can overtake you? So that instead of interfering with God's ability to bless and bring harmony and shalom and goodness into your life, you can yield to Jesus and begin receiving the gifts that he has for you. As you're able, everybody just stand for a moment, stretch your legs. You stand. It's not a trick or anything. Not going to embarrass anybody. Stand as you're able. Sit down again. There's a final, final grace note in this passage that I want you to see. But you've got to kind of prepare yourself for it because it's pretty rad. The biggest grace note in the passage is not... Noah finding favor in the eyes of the Lord, although that is significant. It is way more subtle than that. It's actually found in verse 14. God's instructions to Noah, make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. An ark of wood coated inside and out with pitch or tar. probably doesn't take your breath away. But if you learn one little thing, it might. The word that's used for pitch in Hebrew is kofer. And if you know anything about Hebrew and you trace how words are used in the Bible, what's interesting about kofer is it's not the normal word that is translated for pitch or for tar. So for example, just a few chapters later, the builders of the Tower of Babel say, hey, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they used brick instead of stone and tar or pitch for mortar. And the word that's used there is hamar. And that's the usual word that gets translated as pitch or tar. When Moses, as a baby, is laid in a papyrus basket in the river, the Hebrew word says that it was coated with tar and pitch, but the word is hamar. It's not the word kofer. So why is kofer used here? Well, technically, you can translate it as 
to cover something in pitch. That is its most rudimentary usage in terms of um, the word. But in almost every other instance in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, do you know how it's translated? Kofer, to make an atonement. All the time in Leviticus, the atonement offerings are Kofer offerings. So when you look at this picture, an ark coated inside and out, coated with pitch, what we really want to hear is it's coated with atonement. And then when you see this picture, can you go to the next one, Marvin? This is the ark of wood, coated and covered in atonement, covering the sin of all who enter into Christ by faith, Christ who is the truly and perfectly righteous and holy one, Christ who comes to seek and save those who are at risk from being overwhelmed by the flood of sin's power and sin's penalty. Have you entered into new life in Christ? Have you entered into the only one that can cover you with a life-transforming atonement? Let's pray. God, as we continue to worship you, may you